0: Hi, and welcome back to OA on Air, the official podcast of O'Neill and Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week we have 3 2, one Go with Cosmo Macero, an interview with Melissa Rogers, former special assistant to President Obama and Executive Director of the White House Office of Faith Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. And in two minutes with Tom, Tom talks to Patrick joining the race and takes a quick walk down memory lane. First up, 321Go.
1: Let's talk about something important. Hello and welcome to 321 Go on OA on Air, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, business, culture, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go... We talk to Brett Aarons of MarketWatch about using astrology signs to help make investments. And we look at the American actor Tom Hanks and discuss why he's probably the nicest man ever. Finally, America's milk consumption has plummeted and the largest producer of milk in the country is bankrupt. We'll discuss. Joining me here on 321GO is... Cayenne Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on air. Cayenne, how are you? I'm good. Excellent. You? Another. I'm okay. Another busy week. Interesting stuff. Lots of interesting stuff. Yes. Um. All right. Let's get to it. All right. Straight ahead here on three, two, one, go. We've got Brett Aarons from Market Watch in the house in the OA on air studio. Brett, welcome back. Great to be here as always. Excellent. All right. With so, so much wisdom. So much wisdom. So me? much wisdom. Yes. So much financial wisdom. Oh, boy. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of wisdom, what is the wisdom of using astrological symbols in your astrological sign to make investment decisions? Brett, there's a new app, Brett and Cayenne, called Bull and Moon. It's from uh, the Brooklyn-based creative label. Of course, it is. M S I guess that's uh, short for mischief. Maybe it's not, but it seems like it is. Bull and Moon asks for your name, birthday, and investment experience. From there, it pairs you with companies <laughs> using their founding dates as birthdays. We can't even make it through the intro of this. As birthdays to determine the stocks with astrological signs most compatible with your with your own. They've got. They say they've got a little track record. Uh, it, it, uh, they've got. You know. They've got some. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, past performance is not an indicator of future results. Track record, but they did okay. Whatever. The idea is using your astro- astrological sign, Cayenne and Brett, to pick stocks, right? Picking right. stocks. Right. Picking stocks with a dartboard, picking stocks with, uh, or, or, or picking a horse, or picking a number, or picking a football team. Uh, and in this case, picking a stock. Yeah, this just is throw it
0: against the wall and see what sticks.
1: Yeah. So, 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 so break this down for me, Brett, in terms of the idea of investment decisions— Where you're you're placing your assets, something very precious and important to your family, uh, should be made by
2: just picking something. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, a year ago I went up to um, Salem. Uh, Warren Buffett once said that the the stock analysts on Wall Street only exist to make uh, fortune tellers look good. So I figured I'd go up to Salem to um, (laughs) find out what they thought about the stock market. And, uh, you know, the fortune tellers in Salem, uh, Massachusetts, are actually licensed by the state. And they're not allowed to give financial advice. So I, I eventually sort of I got like to, that's a
0: wise choice.
2: Got work around, um, and the guy basically told me to get out of the stock market and or uh, well not to invest more in the stock. Market. And this was just before the stock market crashed last year. So look, he's uh, he's one for one. Yeah, but how do you know that that wasn't
0: a fortune teller that just also studied up finance and yeah. stock
2: markets? Now, if he studied up financial <laughs> stock market, it was it, what the real question is: How do you know he didn't just flip a coin? Because the truth is. You got a fifty percent chance of being right. Look, here's the thing about the about the this app. I mean, logically, if you think about it, what are they saying? Are they saying that um, you know stocks stocks are going to go up for Virgo? Stocks are going to go up for and you know if a stock if a stock is going to go up for a Virgo, the same stock isn't going to go down for a Capricorn. I mean, it's
0: <laughs> well, to me, their no, percentages I, I, oh, are in right. there. It's not about your sign going up. It's about how you're managing and who's managing according to your sign based on... But to me, an algorithm is an algorithm. Yeah, they're, right? they're like, aligning I,
1: you with companies based on your birth date. So you're right about that, Brett. Uh, well, there's one There's one good thing about this. There's one good thing well, about is, is this. Is this active management? Is it passive
2: or, 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 or is it something else? Because a bunch of guys, uh, I think it was the AQR, which is a hedge fund company, um, did some analysis. They ran... Uh, They got all the data on the stock, the performance of every stock on the stock market going back to the early 60s, and they picked 30 stocks completely at random. It was a dartboard. You know, they basically throw a dartboard, pick 30 stocks at random, Um, equal weighted. I think they rebalanced it every year, and they ran this model time and time and time again, and they said, this beat the stock market index 99% of the time. Wow. Basically... Picking 30 stocks at random, <laughs> putting an equal amount into each one, and just hanging just on f- it. for just for a year. Right, so, so, so this is sort of a fun way of doing just that. Right? It is it, exactly a fun way of doing that. You could do the same with tarot cards. You could do the same with tarot cards. Warren Buffett, when he said, you know, stock analysts make fortune tellers look good, he was only half making a joke. What he really meant was, you know, the stock analysts don't beat the market; they don't beat the indices. Um, it's all because essentially everything they know is already reflected in the price. Um, the The point about the the um, experiment with the thirty stocks was that it was equally weighted, so that essentially you didn't have uh, most of your money in Apple and Google and Microsoft and the big companies. It was basically equally weighted across thirty stocks picked. At random, and um, and that basically you could you could pick those thirty using a um, a dartboard, using a dart board or yeah. using a tarot card, or using mood crystals, or um, star signs, or whatever.
1: Kyan, are you going to experiment with your financial planning using uh, your astrological sign or some other
0: uh, method? I'd probably have just as much luck because I don't really understand much of anything. I'm going to just uh, defer to Brett. Over here. Whatever Brad tells you'll just me just stick with, You'll just stick <laughs> with that. You'll, you'll stick with that index mutual fund.
1: I'll stick with whoever's the currently en- managing the it The anecdote right now. of how this company got started uh, tells me something. Um, that it was in Brooklyn? Th- 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 that it th- was in they Brooklyn. may be on to something if indeed uh, we, we remind ourselves of that of that, uh, uh, of that exercise with the 30 stocks picked at random. But uh, the founder says that the origins of the app are traced back to when he saw a coworker dipping french fries into a milkshake an unusual yet common combination," uh, he said. "The occurrence motivated it's more him popular and his team. Than Wendy's. Uh, I, yeah, <laughs> the occurrence Rise into motivated. A he told this is another uh, the, the uh, uh, Business Insider story. The occurrence motivated him and his team to continue exploring the intersection of sectors of the market that aren't typically associated with each other. So he had an epiphany dipping fries into his milkshake. Yeah, that's a and
2: thing here guy, we are. That's a guy I want running <laughs> yeah. my money. I, that's a guy, that's a guy I want running my money. I
0: still don't understand how one got to the other because you, I I more understand mm-hmm. dipping fries into a milkshake than I understand my astrological mind. Well, no, it's you know, great
1: taste to go, go great together, whatever. And then he says, okay, that we, let's look oh, into the market sweet. for... Sectors that work hey, well together. Hey, chocolate my peanut butter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, you've got <laughs> peanut butter on my chocolate. So then he says, "Let's look at sectors that work well together." Okay, how does that get you to the astrological yeah, symbol? I, I, I have no I idea. Have no they no also idea. made Jesus shoes. This is. Um, they I did make Jesus shoes. They got holy water, and they and, and These they are
0: and are put them into the
2: sole of your sneakers.
0: Renaissance men, is <laughs> what they are. Yeah.
2: Look, well, right. you can do this at home. I actually can't remember whether research was done by. AQR, or research affiliates, but basically they said 30 stocks picked at random, equally weighted, 99% chance of beating the index. So get that tarot card out, get the dartboard out, whatever, and save yourself the Wall Street uh, management fees. I'm
1: going to let my six-year-old pick. It's a wise investor who's ru- who rules the st- oh. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say that it again? <laughs> it's a wise investor who rules the stars. It's a fool who's ruled by them. That's an adapted phrase by the the great Daryl Martini, the Cosmic Muffin. All right. The uh, you quoted him
0: recently. I on did. This
1: podcast. I oh, I did already quote you him on did. the podcast. Yes. Yeah. I'm doing it again. That's okay. He's a great uh, historic uh, late right. night uh, like it, love it, live by it astrological uh, radio personality of uh, yesteryear. There we go. All All right. Right. I just
2: uh, I think the business model here, um, you know, the psychic hotline. There's the stock market hotline, and it's you know call up and you know get financial advice.
0: Oh. I'm
1: just going to call you,
2: a Psychic. a Psychic. Yeah. Um, all
1: right, Brett Aaron's Market Watch. Thanks for joining us and stick around. Great to be here. All right, Cayenne. So I recently finished reading, as I believe you did. Possibly the longest story in the history of the New York Times.
0: I, I couldn't even finish the whole thing. It's a profile of Tom Hanks.
1: It, it has to be. It has to be 5,000 words, Maybe more. It just seemed... And I'm not saying it was dreary. It was, it was fascinating. We're it talking was about very it because I'm fascinated yeah. by it. Great and story. And, and, it, and it rings true. But it was long. Uh, the premise being, yeah, Tom Hanks really is kind of the nicest guy in the world. Well, and what's
0: more shocking <laughs> is that you got thousands of words from somebody about that very simple idea.
1: Exactly, right? exactly. It, it, and it, it's just—it's a meandering sort of really well-done celebrity profile, multiple visits, multiple interviews, different places they were in, Santa Fe and here and there. Um, uh, but the idea is uh, they keep coming back to these different anecdotes, and they sort of wrap it all into... What stories like this are always designed to be a promotional vehicle of some kind for his latest film, right? Mm-hmm. The, uh, the Mr. Beautiful Rogers. Day in the Neighborhood. Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, Mr. Rogers, and, and uh, there, there's irony in that Mr. Rogers, every kid's perfect, you know, uh, nice guy, adult, role model, mentor uh, uh, kind of figure, um, is, is played by you know, the nicest guy in Hollywood history. And 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 one of the nice works out well. So the idea being that Mr. Rogers, consummate children's television workshop, nice guy, guy. played by consummate Hollywood nice guy. Yeah. Right.
0: Not surprising.
1: No, it isn't surprising.
0: Not surprising that Tom Hanks is actually the nicest man in Hollywood because he seems like it. Like who does? You just like want Tom Hanks to be like your uncle.
1: Yeah. There's really cool anecdotes in here about how you know in the in the prep and the preparation for Saving Private Ryan. Spielberg Spielberg sends the whole cast to um go do uh, some to, training uh, like marine, in the muck. actual Marine Corps training and they and halfway through the, the most they all take a vote and they're like we're out of here except not Tom Hanks he's like I'm going through with it you know I'm doing
0: and then encourage the rest of them to stay
1: and encur- and and, and, and turn exactly yeah um and I have read an anecdote about him. It may have been a. It actually may have been a little celebrity news item. He was. At a, he's at like an outdoor festival. He's at like a concert, and he walks up, and he's like, "I, I want a draft. Give me a draft beer," and they'll, and you know, it's some, uh, you know, relatively young, eager employee. He's like, "I'm sorry, sir, but we have to ask everyone for their ID." And he's like, "Oh, it's, you know, I, you know, I don't have it on me, but you know who I am." So, and she's like, "I'm sorry, sir," and he's like. He gave her like a, so I'm I'm Tom Hanks. Have you seen me in, uh, like in this movie? He did it once, and she's like, no. And he's like, all right, I'm bailing out on the. Do you know who I am? He's like, okay, no no big deal. Thanks. Like just walks away. Yeah. Like doesn't like demand a beer. Doesn't like. So most other Hollywood celebrities would be like, what? you know, they'd get their entourage to go up and and, and straighten that situation out.
0: Well, and what it, I when I read, and I I still haven't gotten through the entire article. It's taking me all day, but um, I plan on finishing it. What was remarkable to me was that so much of this is just about being, a, you know, kind of a genuine, everyday good person that just does the right thing. Not even always the nice thing, but just the right thing. The right thing. And number one, that that is so – it's held in such esteem at this point in society today that people are like that at all. And then on another level, that they're like that in Hollywood. Like, what does that say about – so many other people, like, a lot of what these stories are is really not him going above and beyond to be the nicest person, but yeah. just doing the simple basic decency of doing the right thing in any circumstances.
1: He was awarded the Medal of Freedom.
0: Presidential Medal
1: of Freedom, yeah. Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, so it's, uh, and, and and his career has spanned, uh, you know we're already, I think we're like 10 years past his big, um, you know, from Lincoln Center Honors, you know, that was 10 years ago, and he and he's still going.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, he got uh, his Oscars for Philadelphia and Forrest almost, Gump like 18-plus years ago. Yeah, like it's amazing like that. he
1: hasn't won one since then because he had tr- some tremendous roles. He's great
0: in everything he does. That's yeah. the other thing. Um, one of the things that stuck out to me was, well, there's actually a couple, but um, getting back to the simplicity of he learned how important it was to show up a little bit early, which is just a really nice thing in general, and to respect the whole process. He said, I think that you could respect the whole process even when other people don't. And I think that is just such a message of basic decency for so many people. Like, when I talk to people about the work that we do and every day in, in PR and in dealing with people and there's a give and a take and, um, you know, what is it that... Like, do you like working with other – and, all? I'm like, I, I just – we all have a job to do, right? We all have this job to do. And I think as long as we all respect each other for having this job to do, we're not always going to be on the same side of things. But, like, if you get there, how much easier just makes things go? Oh, yeah. It's not hard. It's not hard. That's my – that was my, my biggest thing in reading this. It's like,
1: he's just doing the right thing. Let's just all do the right thing. You get divorced early in life and then remarried – Also early in life to read, is Rita Wilson? Rita
0: Wilson, yep, speaks very highly of her. Always, you
1: know, that's that's then like you know, picture perfect little marriage, like just nothing, no, just no celebrity drama. He is such
0: a publicist's dream. I mean, his publicist's biggest problem was making sure that the reporter portrayed that this isn't just Tom Hanks being Tom Hanks. That he is in fact acting in this movie, and that they didn't want that to get lost. That they didn't want his niceness to get mixed up. With the niceness and goodness of Mr. Rogers.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's a good problem to have.
1: It is a good problem. (laughs) All right. Tom Hanks, American role model for niceness. (laughs) Thanks, Kayanne. All right, Kayanne, let's talk about milk. First of all, you're not a big milk drinker. I'm not. You're not. You recognize the importance of milk. To uh, the American household and the U.S. economy and uh, all that stuff, right? Mil-
0: milk's having a problem.
1: Milk has a problem. It still it has, has a, a place a lot in the American. Re- this is in the Associated Press. Still has a place in the American refrigerator. It certainly does. It's in it's in our refrigerator at home, but it's sharing that space with juices, flavored sodas, a myriad of other options, all kinds of flavored waters, and so on and so forth. On Tuesday, Dean Foods. They are the nation's largest milk processor filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. They may sell the company off to the dairy farmers of America. So Americans are not drinking milk like they used to for several reasons. Primarily.
0: Lots of competition
1: now. So much to choose from. So many other options that just didn't exist. Almond milk,
0: oat milk, coconut milk.
1: So many options of other milk. I wouldn't even call it milk-like products. You know, alleged milk products. Alleged. Since 1975, I'm a purist. If it doesn't come from a cow, it's not milk. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. If it doesn't come from an animal, it's not milk. There's goat's milk and such. Since 1975, the amount of milk consumed per capita in America has tumbled more than 40%. What is your family's relationship with milk cayenne?
0: We have both milk and almond milk in our refrigerator at all times.
1: I'm afraid to try almond milk. I'm I'm afraid it will taste so horrible that I will uh, I will have like a, a, a meltdown.
0: Um, I use it. I make like a shake every morning for breakfast, and I use almond milk in that. But if I'm going to have a bowl of cereal, I still use regular it, milk. Yeah. Despite the fact that I don't really like milk. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I have a complicated relationship yeah, with milk.
1: Yeah, milk is one of those things. It's funny, when my son, now almost 17, was an infant, my oldest son, uh, and he, he drank a lot of real milk. Yep. Uh, not an infant, but, you know, as a, as a toddler. And um, I drank a lot of milk then. I don't drink as much now. I probably drink a maximum of one glass, one eight-ounce glass per day, and that's pushing it. It's more like, if I remember, I'll have like four or six ounces or whatever. And now with cereal, are you a swimming-in-the-milk I'm not either. I'm a, just a little at the bottom, just sort of to adjust when I was a the kid, texture. I drained it off the spoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like uh, I like my cereal crispy, yeah. strong texture, but a little milk in there.
0: I would. They've got They've got to fight back. I think they've got a little bit of like a branding problem here. They're getting drowned out well, by so many other. There's so much competition. Then you have, saying they, These are better for you. Like, since when is milk bad for you? Oh my God! Well, like Drew Barrymore.
1: Remember Drew Barrymore? She was one of the one of the people on major kick against milk as a, uh, 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 as a health issue. It's terrible for you. It's 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 basically which you we know, know is not true. I, I, I don't believe that is true at all. It's not need,
0: true. They need to better brand themselves. They've yeah. gotten
1: lost amongst the oat milks and almond milks of the world. Absolutely. It's an important commodity, and it's a it's a a cornerstone of the American diet. There's your headline. Good for your milk bones. Milk has a PR problem. Yeah.
0: Let's help it out.
1: Cut milk? Oh, I just thought of that. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> they All did right.
0: that. And it was very successful.
1: It was. They need a new one. It was a fantastic campaign. They need a, yeah. they need, they need a new one. Yeah. All right. We're here for you, Milk. Thanks, Cayenne. That's going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go. Our program is recorded in Studio 108. Just off the historic Tip O'Neill room in our building in Government Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Masera.
0: That's it for 321Go. Up next, an interview with Melissa Rogers talking about her new book, Faith in American Public Life.
3: i Suzanne Morse, and I'm here with Melissa Rogers, who is the former special assistant to President Barack Obama and executive director of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Rogers has a new book out called Faith in American Public Life, where she looks at the relationship between government and religion, particularly through a legal lens. Rogers is currently visiting professor at Wake Forest University's School of Divinity and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Welcome, Melissa Rogers.
4: Thank you so much, Suzanne. It's great to be here.
3: Absolutely. Um, let's just start by talking about your experience in the Obama White House, um, You know, particularly working on these kind of complicated issues around religion and government, but also what it was like to work with President Obama.
4: Yeah, sure. So you know, I had the great fortune of being able to work with President Obama, who is not only brilliant, uh, also very, um, very insightful Mm -hmm. in this particular area and incredibly kind. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, it was a great privilege to work for him and to serve the country. And, you know, his knowledge in this area is is deep and varied. Uh, He served as one of his first jobs to work as a community organizer on the south side of Chicago, working with faith-based and other organizations to try to improve people's economic opportunities and their ability to live life to their full potential. And so he understood from the very beginning the power of faith-based and neighborhood organizations to really change people's lives for the yeah,
3: better. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people don't realize that, but that work that he did as a community organizer was a, was funded by the Catholic Church through exactly. the Campaign for Human Development. And he so had yeah.
4: one of his first offices within yep. a Catholic within church. Within a parish, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. So he, no one had explained this to him. Yeah. He kn- understood it very well from firsthand experience and wanted to... Try to bring that experience to bear in the White House and in his work through the administration. Also, as you well know, President Obama taught constitutional law, Yep. so right, he yep. came with a double-barreled experience, professional experience in that regard and has a very subtle understanding of the First Amendment and the religious liberty guarantees of our Constitution and always wanted to be sure that we were doing our very best to honor both the letter and the spirit of those guarantees. And, of course, he also is a committed Christian and brings his own knowledge of faith and his own faith commitments to this area as well. So that made it a very rich experience and a very rewarding one. And at every turn, the president would want us, first Joshua Dubois, who's my predecessor in this position, and then me, to make sure that religious and other humanitarian groups were always at the table when we tackled important problems. And so one example of that was, um, as you will recall, when the terrible Ebola virus mm, emerged in West yeah. Africa in 2014, the president immediately understood that we had to have the government involved, including, you know, military where necessary. We had to have medical professionals involved. Yeah. We also had to have faith-based and humanitarian organizations involved. and so. Very early on when that um, virus hit in West Africa, he convened a remarkable coalition of faith-based and humanitarian leaders to sit down with medical professionals and others to think through these issues and these challenges that were facing us. One was a challenge of how you uh, deal with um, burial processes when people died of the Ebola virus. We needed... A safe burial practice, one that was medically sound, and also was respectful of the the religions that people right, practiced culturally. Yes, yeah. because there was in some religious traditions quite a bit of handling of the body, which was resulting in the transmission of right, the Ebola yeah, virus. Right, of course. So he he understood that we had to have an awareness both of the medicine that was involved and the good health practices while also paying attention to the religious traditions and working with religious leaders to come up with a recommended procedure that they could use and feel comfortable with in their communities. And so that's one example, but another example was that we had of course in the united states and in west africa a sort of fear fearful reaction understandably it's this very scary virus but we wanted to make sure that people were reacting based on facts not fear and also compassion so he helped to assemble these groups to make sure that we all had good information and that we were all disseminating it within Mm. our communities whether it was in our churches or synagogues or mosques or whether it was in some other venue. So he appreciated that. And then another part of this um, story was that he, um, when uh, one of the doctors, the very courageous doctors who treated Ebola uh, patients, uh, Dr. Kent Brantley actually contracted the disease himself, very sadly, he was working with a faith-based organization at the time and he was, airlifted back to the United States and thankfully made a full recovery and when he um, let us know that he was in town and would you know be open to meeting with the president the president immediately said yes yeah. and sat down with uh, Kent and Dr. Kent Brantley and his wife Amber in the oval office pictures were taken and of course they went out around the world right. and it Demonstrated that we did not have to be fearful about um, welcoming Ebola right. survivors back to the community. So that's just one example of a way in which the president's awareness and interest and appreciation of the contributions that faith and humanitarian organizations make to all kinds of challenges, big. Um, high-profile challenges like that one, but also everyday challenges that we face in our neighborhoods.
3: And that's so interesting because it's kind of an under-the-radar type of story. I don't think I had heard that before. Yes. So that's great. Wonderful. Yeah. So let's turn to the book. Um, you've talked about religious freedom as it relates to the country's sense of pluralism. And you talked a little bit about the, th- the threats that we're currently facing around that. So talk a little bit about why you think a threat to religious pluralism is threatening to what we could call the American way of life.
4: Right. Well, I think our country, at its best, we Mm -hmm. haven't always operated in the best traditions, but at its best, the country has done something remarkable, which is to say that no person's uh, standing before government will be dependent on their religious beliefs or affiliations or their lack of religious participation right. that's not true in places all around the world and um, and it's certainly not true uh, generally speaking the sweep of history mm-hmm. so the fact that we have a country that in our founding documents makes those kinds of promises has made this country one of the most diverse and one of the most religiously vital. Mm -hmm. And one that is characterized not simply by peaceful coexistence among people of different faiths and beliefs, but by actual engagement and cooperation for the greater good. So these are precious gifts, and uh, we ignore them at our peril. Um, We endanger them at our peril. And I think that is one of the things I wanted to lift up to remind people of how fortunate we are in the United States to have these um, constitutional promises that are written on paper but are not actually realized unless we all are committed to them and living them out in our lives, including holding our elected leaders accountable to them.
3: Um, So you spoke last night at the Harvard Divinity School, um, and you talked about Uh, the idea that if a religion aligns itself more closely with government or vice versa, government aligns itself more closely with religion, it ends up weakening religion. So can you explain what you mean by that? And I think as it particularly relates to religious institutions or religious uh, organizations being able to hold the government accountable.
4: Right. So... We have in our Constitution to put simply that the government can't promote religion, but it has to protect religious organizations and religious individuals in doing so. So one of the concerns that we run into when we break those rules, if you will, when the government actually um, sponsors prayers in our public schools, Mm -hmm. for example, then we end up violating everyone's conscience first and foremost, because the government really is not Proper has no proper authority to lead and organize prayers right. or to sponsor them. Then we also uh, run into the problem of de facto religious establishments because the government, the government-sponsored prayer is going to be most often the majority prayer, and right. then uh, a, probably a strand within the majority, you know, that it um, feels comfortable sponsoring right. and is trying to avoid community backlash. So it picks the majority prayer over. The minority phase. Which
3: gets back to this question of pluralism. Right. That we were just talking about.
4: We don't want people to feel like outsiders in the United States of America um, when they're interacting with their government simply because of their religion. So we end up seeing when the government sponsors religion, that it's going to choose the majority religion, it's going to discriminate against minority faiths and make people feel like outsiders based on their religion. Then this problem that you just mentioned also occurs in that (coughs) when the government is sponsoring religion, it will tend to magnify teachings that it likes, that are in line with whatever government agenda is being propounded. And it will tend to modify or even suppress elements of the faith that it, you know, feels are challenging to right. the state's agenda. So what we'd be left with in that situation is kind of a funhouse mirror version of our faith, not an authentic one. And because the government has a big microphone when it is propounding a religion, then it can tend to drown out the authentic expressions of religion. And that can be a problem, it, it, Not it is an, of, of itself a problem, but it's also a problem in that when we have, think back on some of the best moments of our history, they have been when religious and other groups have called the government to the better angels of its nature yeah. and said during the civil rights struggle, for instance, this Jim Crow segregation cannot stand. Right. It is immoral and it is against uh, the best uh, aspirations of the country. Well, that was, you know, African-American religious communities were at the forefront of that. We saw um, during the the height of the family separation policy, there's a picture on the front of my book of women of faith leading a protest against that policy. And so I think it's all these reasons that we want to be very careful and not turn back precedents that have kept the government out of promoting religion. Yeah. Instead, we want to, as that picture on the front of my book indicates, that is a protest on government property, allow those authentic ways for religion to be in control of its own expression and to interact with government, in this case, protest against government. Um, and that's a, a really great way for religion to to be seen in the public square to have voice in the public square um, but not to be under the thumb of government.
3: Yeah, and I think it speaks a little bit to leading into my next question, these whole this whole question of misperceptions. Right. And misperception about faith, but also the role that faith plays in public life. Um, and so talk a little bit about what you see those misperceptions being and then, you know, we're hearing up, you know, we're a public relations firm. Mm-hmm. How does, how does an everyday American, including myself, uh, work to correct those misperceptions?
4: Right, that's a great question. And I, and I appreciate all the expertise that you bring to this question because I think we can always look for opportunities mm. to improve. Yep. Um, so, you know, we, we have heard things for years saying, uh, sayings like, well, the Supreme Court has kicked religion out of public mm. life. Right. Yeah, that's not true. A president can't speak about his or her faith because we have separation of church and state. That's not true. Uh, Public schools are religion-free zones, also untrue. So, and then, you know, people can get confused even about the phrase separation of church and state. Now, I count myself as a a proponent and an advocate of church-state separation, properly understood. Uh, to me, it does not mean that religion and government don't have any contact, but yet that they maintain, uh, as the religious and governmental sector, maintain a meaningful independence from one another and aren't controlling one right. another. So I think there's there can sometimes be a situation where we are talking past one another because we don't know what right. we mean by a phrase like separation of church and state. It can also be a little confusing um, when, when we, we need to clarify... And the t- title of my book hits on this: the religion in public life. I mean not just religion in a governmental sphere, but also religion wherever it is publicly visible or publicly right. accessible. So, the front lawns of our houses of worship, um, when we bring faith into the secular private workplace, for you know, have a, having a Bible study at lunch, right. um, just as people might have any kind of. Um, other uh, hobby or, 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 you know, personal interest gathering at lunch, at work. So, you know, I think there's much space and that the court has recognized um, where religion can play a vital role in our public life. And we need to make sure that we are not Mm -hmm. um, using these phrases that um, can be very confusing for people and actually wrong. Yeah, (laughs) right, of course. Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, there's some that are just confused and there's some that are actually trying to stoke resentment. Yeah. And that is a real problem. They're trying to stoke resentment against the court to paint it as an institution that's hostile to faith. I don't think that's ever been the case. The case it's certainly yeah. not been my experience in reading court opinions for years. <clears throat> so that's just a bit of an, an idea of what I'm trying to get at there. And my hope is that if we can take some things off the table that we're not actually disagreeing about, right. we're just not understanding one another, then I hope we can dial down the temperature on these conversations that get, can get real hot very quick. Yeah. So, can we? agree on certain things um, like, yes, students at public schools should be able to pray at public schools over their lunch, with their friends, at recess, um, of course, anytime, silently to themselves, including in groups, uh, on public school property, after school, to the extent that other non-curriculum clubs can meet in secondary schools. Can we agree on that and then focus on the other areas that are where we actually do have disagreements? Right, yeah. And we can hopefully have a civil conversation about this disagreement and a better conversation because we're not misunderstanding one another.
3: So is there anything we missed? <laughs> <laughs> I know this Oh, is, we could go on for I know, hours. that is true. It's not a topic <laughs> but, uh, that lends itself to. No, I just, um, <laughs> you minutes. know,
4: as I say in the book, I hope that we're able to, especially right now, stand up for our neighbors um, it, because we do have a problem in the, in the per- current, Uh, atmosphere of attacks and hostility and discrimination against people because of their religion, because of their race, their ethnicity. And I think it's so important for us to move from the sidelines of, of this issue into solidarity with people who are being targeted and hold our elected leaders accountable for any fear-mongering that they might do on these issues because lives are at stake. Absolutely. And the pluralistic nature of our country is also at stake. So I think it's particularly important now to encourage people to um, take what might have been a private lament about um, fear-mongering that they hear from an elected official and to begin to step into some public advocacy by holding our elected leaders accountable to standards that really George Washington helped us to um, articulate, which included his letter to the Turo Synagogue saying right. that we should give to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance. And I know um, your, your colleague Steve uh, signed on to a letter that we sent to right. some yep. members of Congress and other elected leaders about those important um, promises and principles. So. I just hope that we're able to focus more on that. That certainly should be common ground and I think is for most Americans. and it's just really important as as people um, live their daily lives right now for us to stand up as citizens for one another.
3: Yeah, and I like the reminder that this goes back to the founding of our country, these Absolutely. understandings of you know um, tolerance and uh, respecting each other's differences so right the book is faith in american public life melissa rogers thank you for joining
4: us on oar on air thank you so much
0: Thanks to Melissa for joining us. Up next, two minutes with Tom. Hi, Kyan. Hi, Tom.
5: You're pretty cool. Oh,
0: thank you. Yeah. Not so bad yourself, sir.
5: You, well, I, I say that because every time I've, I've seen you over the last week, you've had blankets on.
0: Oh, so, so you don't mean like my personality no, is cool. No, I think cool. you're. You I, mean that like my my body temperature <laughs> is cool.
5: No, I mean you're. Pretty That's
0: cold. fine. I'm also I mean I'm you're also cold. Cool.
5: So that's 30 seconds of two minutes with Tom.
0: All right, we've got a minute, a minute and a half to go. This
5: is episode 70.
0: Episode 70. It's an
5: adventurous week, politically speaking, isn't it? Huh?
0: It is, but can we first just talk about how we went, took a little walk down memory lane with yes. you this week? Of course. You had uh, Frank Costello come and present you with a replica fl- a flag that was important and honored really yours and the O'Neill family as a whole, support of Ireland.
5: Well, you're very kind. It... it it. Um, He's an old friend. Frank Costello is an old friend. He was one of the founders of something called uh, Boston Dairy Ventures, which was an exchange program of industry in, in dairy in the northern part of Ireland to Boston. It started back in the in the late '70s, and uh, it's it's gone on to be the Golden Bridges, which is now the event held every year here now. And the the second thing I did with Frank was. Um, was have an opportunity to bring the all-party talks to Boston and then they went to New York and, and then to Philadelphia and Chicago but it was all parties coming from Northern Ireland and, and Donegal, frankly, people who wouldn't talk to one another over there during the course of the Troubles but when we got them here to the shoreline, they more than had opportunity to converse and, and find and discover each other and, and great friendships were you know, were, were created those talks led to the Boston College all-party talks, which have been in and out of the papers, you know, many times over these last 20 years or so. Um, so Frank and I and our past about the cares and, and, and you know, and the, and, and the interest that we took in Ireland have gone off in two different, two very different ways, but we, we've been together a lot, too, and, and we've worked together to, bring, to help bring peace, along with so many other great characters, to mm-hmm. the island of Ireland.
0: It was a nice presentation. Came in. It
5: was a very thoughtful presentation. He's a historian and he's a, <laughs> yes. a writer and uh, I learned a lot. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> if you if you retain just a, a third of what he's talked about, that would be great. But he gives you a perspective as to when the troubles began back in the 1600s in Ireland with the invasions of, of Britain and uh, and how for 400 years it just continued on.
0: Yeah. And well, now congratulations
5: on that. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah.
0: So, but that was not perhaps the most exciting thing to everyone else in the world that happened this week, but busy week.
5: Locally, here, politically, it's uh, it's been a very exciting week. Um, you've got two Massachusetts natives uh, jumping into the presidential race kind of late, but nevertheless jumping in. Michael Bloomberg, in New York, who's formerly from Medford, Massachusetts, and our own Devel Patrick, yeah. uh, the former governor, who... Um, You know, I don't know whether he's being criticized these days for jumping in at this late date, consequently hurting another homegrown candidate in in, uh, Elizabeth uh, Warren. but um, Questioned. Yes.
0: Certainly questioned, I think.
5: It is questioned, but but I will tell you, he had a team of people, you know, some months back that wanted him to run for Mm -hmm. president and really saw not only the money availability there, but the opportunity for a pathway, because he had, they believe, they believed, the remnants of a very strong Obama campaign out in Iowa, yep. and had he, you know, shown strong there, then he would have next gone to New Hampshire, and it's a home, you know, it's it's a it's the it's next to the home home state, yep. where you know the media markets overlap, and he would have done very well there. And then he goes to South Carolina, which is a, 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 a minority majority. State in mm-hmm. voting, and I think he probably would have done that done well there. Coming into the race this late, I, I don't know what he can piece together, and I don't know what it does to Elizabeth Warren. I think it doesn't it doesn't help her. It doesn't help it doesn't help uh, 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 Joe Biden either. You know, the two campaigns for Bloomberg, and and for DeVell, whatever strength is left with Joe Biden is going to be sapped here. The question is how much, yeah. and. Who then is left standing at the end of all this? But it's uh, it's kind of fascinating, and as people have learned, and we have always said, you know, a week in politics is uh, is a lifetime, and that's things true. can change overnight. And uh, you know, that's the report from here today.
0: Oh, well, we don't. We'll watch it unfold.
5: We'll watch it unfold. What are your thoughts?
0: Um, it, it's interesting to me. You know, a couple weeks ago, you and I talked about how we were getting to this point. where We were whittling down the the Democratic field and we, you know we're kind of getting a little bit more focused on our candidates and then now we've got a couple more that that joined in um, it seems a little counterintuitive to the process but crazier things have been done you know um, you know I think his point was uh, which he said from the beginning you know when he was looking at running you know if, if I see that the the Democratic Voters can get behind a candidate, and he looked around and said, I, I, I'm not seeing it, and I think I have something to offer. And um, I think there's a sense of civic duty there a little bit, uh, so to speak, and it it's fitting for, for him and who he is that that was his take, I think, that he felt like I, maybe it's me, so why not give it a try?
5: I think that's right, and uh, I, kn- I know he's surrounded by people who have an awful lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. In him as a candidate, in him as an individual performer, yes. in him as somebody who, if elected, can do the job, um, and so they're out in droves. I, I feel the same way about Bloomberg. I had breakfast with a, with a woman yesterday who had worked for Bloomberg and was the first one to volunteer on his campaign after his announcement. So they they both have, you know, just terrific fo- uh, followings. They have terrific loyalty with people mm-hmm. who they've worked with before and and. Let's see what happens with all of that.
0: Yeah. More to come. More to come. Thanks, Tom.
5: Thank you, Cayenne.
0: That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Now don't forget to subscribe on whatever your favorite listening platform may be. You can also check us out on our own O'Neill & Associates website.